Good morning. Uh, I will open us in prayer and then we'll dig in. I have some preliminary. I'll, I'll answer a couple questions that I had posed to me this week and then I'll uh, give you some immediate relevance as to why this topic is as, import, as, as important. Some stuff from Canada this week um, is definitely, it couldn't get more relevant than a law they just passed a couple days ago that would affect how we even teach these things if our country did something like that. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to meet together and to consider your words, uh, perspective, and direction as it relates to human sexuality. I pray, Lord, that we would be bold in our exploration of this topic, not just here in public, but like in our homes with parents and, and young people and just peers, just talking out what it is that you have for us. There's so much misinformation in this area that leads to pain and to suffering and difficulty. Help us, Lord, to... Uh, despite the shame that sometimes comes with the you know, sins in the past with this or things that have happened to us, that you give us by your spirit uh, boldness that we could just really speak uh, about this in a way uh, that you would help us and help us to honor you by what we say. And just, I pray that people be encouraged and assured of their salvation as they think of the struggles they deal with, how they're part of this Christian life, and that you promise to guide us through these and be with us. And we look forward to of the final consummation to come, where we'll experience that glorified state. But Lord, in the meantime, we need your Spirit's help uh, regularly, daily, minute by minute. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're, taught, we're studying biblical sexuality, human sexuality, um, based on the PCA's study report, which is really well devised. It gives us 12 different topics. Um, these three weeks are, are tough because they're just rough topics. Because they're just kind of depressing. We're talking about um, our, our original sin and our corrupted nature. We're talking about our desires and concu uh, concupiscence, which is that term given to our desires that the Catholic Church tried to separate out desires and say that some desires we have aren't sinful in themselves unless you actually carry them out. And that would be different from what we studied about desires, but we needed to take one full week to discuss that last week because that's one of the things that's used in the argument uh, concerning sexual sin or sexual desires. That, you know, whatever your sexual desires are, as long as you don't act out on them, they're not actually sin. That comes from that Roman Catholic doctrine. So uh, we need to do some correction biblically from that, and that's what we were doing with the original sin in which, with, in desires that helped us understand it better. Then we pause to consider this erroneous way of looking, and then we'll go on to temptations. Once we finish this section, then we get into the more... Um, the more bright uh, side of things where we talk about um, Christ and we talk about sanctification, how God is doing this work. Yes, we have these desires and these temptations are real and such, but we also have the aid of the Holy Spirit through the gospel to help us fight against those. And we in engage in that fight a bit as Christians because we're all engaged in that struggle. So I'm giving you a uh, you know, heads up to look ahead to what we'll get to talk about um, while we go through some of the low spots that are just the truth about who we are and what, how we're made up. Before I go there, though, just to kind of convince you further that this topic is worth discussing. It's, it's important for us to discuss so that you are well-equipped. And we're doing it in a thorough way so that we're not just reacting with little, little tidbits that fire back at people when people um, call you a name, you know, if you're a homophobe or you're this or, you're, you're, or all the different terms that people will call you uh, because you have a biblical view of uh, sexuality or a prude because you believe in marriage between, you know, uh, monogamous marriage and such. Um, so we need more than just simply some trite little answers to fire back on Twitter. We need something that has substance, and that's the biblical teaching on this whole topic, which transcends, not just, it transcends all areas of living. 
But this week, um, it's been brewing in Canada for some time. And I have lots of friends in Canada. I grew up right on the border, as many of you know. And then when I went to Moody, there's a couple uh, pastor friends of ours who went back. They were from Canada, and now they're pastoring in Canada. Um, and they've been really under uh, duress. I mean, whatever duress we felt in the United States as, as Christians, um, it's been much worse there. Now, they're used to it a little bit because the country's governmental structure is not the same as ours. Um, so there's been always been more government um, intrusion and influence on things that's just part and parcel to the way their governmental structure works. So they, they've always been a little more um, accepting of that as a citizenry. Um, but what has happened recently is the passage of this C4 law. It's into the criminal code. In the, summarize, the summarization of C4 in Canada's code, which took effect of law on January 7, this enactment amends the criminal code, among other things, to create the following offenses. Causing another person to undergo conversion therapy. And I'll explain what that is in a moment. Doing anything for the purpose of removing a child from Canada with the intention that the child undergo conversion therapy. Now, conversion therapy is a word that describes um, if someone says they are of one sexual orientation, say I'm, uh, a male says I'm a, I'm a homosexual or, or, transse- or, uh, or bisexual, whatever they may say, and then the, uh, the attempt is made to convince them that that's not the right way to think and act. You should think differently than this, biblically, you might say. But well, let's just say just to convert them from what they say their orientation is. The key is whatever they say their orientation is. Um, so any activity that would coerce or move a person to rethink how they feel about themselves or identify themselves is criminal now. And it says, uh, it calls it conversion therapy. Now, at this point, it is regarding mostly counselors, professional counselors who receive money. No doubt, it's speaking on that level. Um, but, but that's a minute amount of people that are actually affected by that. These kinds of laws are often passed with a much wider agenda to come. Um, and so further, um, a criminal code, promoting or advertising conversion therapy, receiving a financial or other material benefit from the provision of conversion therapy. Even if a person comes into you and says, you know, I'm struggling with homosexuality, I don't want to have these struggles, it's still considered conversion therapy. If you give them what they want, say, well, let's help you out of those struggles. Um, it also amends the criminal code to authorize courts to order that advertisements for conversion therapy be disposed of or de- deleted. Um, that's going to be biblical counseling is what that's going to be eventually. That's what it probably will be in Canada because anything that would steer people towards a biblical way of acting would be, can fall under the category. It, it's going to. I mean, you know that's got to happen. That's what's next. Um, any, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years or guilty of an offense punishable on summary conviction. Um, that's in Canada, and right now it refers to the professional endeavor, but there's no one there that I'm talking to that thinks that it's ever meant. It's going to be brought to pastors who counsel their members. Um, it could even, parents don't even know what it means. If a parent tells their child um, that, that, who's struggling with something, no matter how compassionately to help them um, see things the way the Lord has designed them and for them, and so that could be considered, it might fall into this category eventually. Not immediately, but with this kind of law in the books, you know, where does it end? What kind of statement? What, when will statements from the pulpit simply describing what I've just been doing for the last several months, um, describing um, what biblical marriage is? At what point will the state say that you're promoting, like if someone got up and harangued racism from the pulpit, just 
harangued other races and taught, you know, just whatever way we would consider, uh, all the, the hateful ways one might say, they would put it in that category. And that's the kind of thing you're seeing in Canada. So be sure that the things we're learning and discussing are important for every member to be understanding and, and ready to be able to give an account and even ready uh, to bear up under whatever might happen um, should it happen. We don't want anyone to be surprised when these things happen. Um, so that's uh, one of the practical reasons I wanted to share with you that just came January 7th. Um, and so I'm sure there's going to be a lot of fights in Canada about it, but there's um, not a lot of hope of reversing it in this particular uh, season of their governance. Um, I find it interesting, if you ever want to keep up on some of these kind of topics, I'm not endorsing everything he says, but Al Mohler has a thing called the briefing every day that's usually helpful and will often address this particular subject because it's so rapidly moving. It's 25 minutes every day he does one during the weekdays, and he covers this topic quite a bit. So you might want to check that out as you have time uh, wherever you get your podcasts, as they say. Okay, so that's a little bit of an intro. Uh, one of the questions I got, we talked about concupiscence here recently, which is this idea of our desires not necessarily being sinful unless you carry them out. Um, in one of the passages that I mentioned in brief, but didn't get to talk about too, mu too much, and it's coming up in today's lesson as well on temptation, is the, the passage from the book of James, in particular verse 14 and 15. Listen to what it says, and I'll explain to you um, why this doesn't argue against the idea that our desires are sinful. It really bolsters it, but it's understandable why when you hear it at first blush, um, and Ro the Roman Catholics will use this too to kind of defend their position. But James 1, 14 and 15, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Someone might say, well, see, the desire is not sin. It doesn't happen until sin. Well, until it turns to sin and then turns to death. Now, there's several reasons why we shouldn't misunderstand this to mean that the desires here that are spoken of don't also mean sin. It's just seed form. It's, it's nascent sin. It's not, as, uh, it's not as full as the sin that comes later. In fact, we'll see that a little bit in today's lesson. Um, it's true that the thoughts that we have that are sinful aren't as severe as when we actually carry them out, but they're sin nevertheless. Um, the word desire used in the ESV is the same word that's translated as lust in multiple other versions. Um, if you look at all the different versions of the Bible, you'd see some say desire, some say sinful lust, some say evil lust. And the reason is the Greek word is used 13 times in the New Testament. In every occasion, it's used in connection with a sinful thought or lust, not just the, just desires that are amoral or have no, um, uh, have no connection to right or wrong. In every case used by multiple authors, this word is used this way. In fact, James uses it in chapter 4 for sinful lust. So the word itself implies a sinfulness to it. Also, James 1, 14 through 15 shows a, a, what we call the motions of sin. Um, and it's less, least, least form all the way to its greatest form, eternal death. From uh, the temptation that happens and then the desires that we have that latch hold of the temptation all the way to when it fulfills, works itself out, and then there's actual, uh, the actual, uh, actualizing of the sin, which leads to eternal death ultimately. Um, when fully grown, brings forth death. So it's a growing, the motions of sin, you might say a continuum that sin, a progress, which is a bad word, but the digression of sin, but the progress of sin from the state of our sinful desire to sinful activity, and then ultimately judgment for sin. Um, Sinful desire lays hold of a sinful temptation, then manifests it in outward sin, and it continues down the course of sin to spiritual destruction. 
Also, when it uses the word temptation, which we'll talk about today, it's only temptation if there's sinful desire to be tempted by. So it's already at root, um, assuming this desire uh, will struggle with a temptation. Why? Because there's sinfulness in the desire itself. Um, also, um, we, see, we read throughout the scripture, um, and we've covered this a bit when we cover desires. The desires, lusts, attractions, appetites, thoughts, these are sinful in themselves. Um, Matthew 5, when Jesus says, it's not just if you kill someone, if you're angry towards someone, um, that kind of a thing. In Romans 7, something similar. I see in my members, uh, well, I'll come to that one in a moment when I talk more about lust. But put it this way, because of original sin, which is where we started, nothing that comes from um, our corrupted nature is left untouched by sin. It may not be as much sin in one area as other, but it's still touched by sin. So all of our, every desire we have has some root in this. Now, the beauty is I'm talking to a group of Christians who've been born again. And so you've experienced some renewal in your life. And so the desires that you have, you're fighting those desires. You still know they're there. Some aren't there like they used to be. You've seen some progress in your sanctification. So it might be tough to remember, but before you're born again, there's no aspect of you that you can look at and say, because you're not even looking at it that way. You don't have a desire to see improvement in your morals. Um, you're, you're, you're just living out on your passions. And there might be some external rules that have, some rules your parents gave or society gave that you adhere to, but that's not the same as the internal, your desires that you know you have, that you're not policing those. Everything's affected. Some years ago, we had a copy machine back uh, in, the other, in the other building, and we, I think we owned, the, yeah, we owned it. Someone donated it, and so we had it. The thing had a perpetual flaw on the roller. It would never, ever print anything without marks on it. You couldn't get it fixed. It cost more than the printer to fix the roller. But at that point in the church's life, that's what we had to do. And it would drive me nuts because we'd have a bulletin in the weekend. And this is before I was a senior pastor, but it drove the guy before me nuts too. There would be this mark in the middle of the doxology every time. And it would just, it just would. That's you and your desires. There's nothing of your desires that can't be marked, they're just all there. That's, that's true, the original the original uh, corruption we have. Now, in Christ, we start to see a sensitivity and, and, and victory over certain things that we didn't before. We know, and there's ways to fight, and that's we're, we're climbing to that in our study. But I say this to mention that, that it is in a, a very essential, basic point to recognize that original corruption that we all have, original sin, total depravity is used, that impacts everything. And so our desires have to be seen in light of that. And the idea of concupiscence, where you can have this desire that isn't really sinful, it comes from the fact we're fallen people, but it's not sinful in itself until it realizes is, is a complete miss of the totality of our depravity. And that totality of depravity is so important to gra- grasp because it, 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 what it does to magnify the full righteousness of Christ that we have credited to us. Um, the full glory goes to God when we get the full bankruptcy of our state. So this is why it's such an important um, topic to get right about our, regarding our desires. Um, the other thing I'll say, a couple other things I'll mention, and this leads right into temptation that we're talking about. So it doesn't lead us to temptation, but it leads us into the topic of temptation. Um, I've got to be careful on everything you say at these, these uh, technical uh, wording classes. Such lusts or desires are contrary to the law and the spirit of God. Galatians, Paul writes, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's talking to Christians who have to make a, a note to walk by the Spirit, to engage in the process of sanctification, uh, engage in that walk, cooperate, if you will, uh, with that. Um, because if you do that, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, so even a believer will struggle with the flesh at times, and the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. This is why you sense a battle as a believer. Because you, there's this battle going on. The Spirit of God will ultimately win in glory, and you'll see some of that victory now, but recognize it's a battle. I mean, that's, there's just nothing less than an all-out war between the Spirit and the flesh. That's what Paul describes in Galatians. They're opposed to each other uh, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Again, believers. He's talking to believers in Galatians. Um, in Romans 7, just the same way. Paul speaking as, as his experience. But I see in my members, this part's... Uh, the parts of his body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's just describing the real battle that Christians face. You should not, you should be, not be unsure of your salvation because you're battling sin. In fact, you should be sure of your salvation if you're battling sin. I'm not always winning. I know. I realize that. But that battle is because the Spirit of God is in you, indwelling you. The deposit of your salvation applies the work of Christ to you. God sees Jesus when he sees you. But you battle with sin now. That doesn't mean you're not saved. It means you're saved. I mean, I say that meaning if you rest in Christ, you know you believe he's the only one who can save you from your sins. Now you're battling with sin, you have trouble. You're saved. That battle is actually indication that there's something working, the Spirit's working. So that's um, all important for recognition. There's not this gap in our desires where our desires are amoral until you act. No, our desires, you can't trust anything about them. They're sinful in their own. We'd be condemnable even if we didn't act out. If we never acted out with a sin, this is why a baby is, 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 is uh, guilty before God apart from saving. God can save at any time, but my point is that even a child is conceived in iniquity. Um, it's thoroughgoing. Um, we are fountains of impurity, and from us come impure desires. In fact, Job, the book of Job, one of the most ancient figures in the Bible, says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is no, there is no one. And that's the basis even for why Paul says there's none righteous, no, not one. Um, you can't, if it were, uh, unclean things can't produce clean things. Like the copy machine cannot ever give a pure copy because there's a mark that comes from the base, from inside, that ultimately leaves itself. Um, a few others, but we don't have time. I'll say this. What would the 10th commandment be without an understanding of our thoughts and our desires being sinful? Thou shalt not covet. What's covet? You don't have to say it out loud at all. It's thinking about how I'd be more complete if I had the stuff you have. Why don't I have the stuff? I want what you have. That would make me more complete. That's all inside. I don't have to say it out loud. Um, but I'll, I'll cap this off by saying, the, uh, I'll read what Calvin says about this because he really gets mad that the Roman Catholics try to use this to argue for their position. Um, mad, I mean, as mad as Calvin gets, but he gets pretty fired up when you hear what he says. But listen to what James 4 says using the same terminology. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Same word for desires. It's translated passions here. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friends of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uses the same kind of terminology, same kind of concepts to then describe how our desires are in and of themselves sinful. Um, I'll close with this comment from, from uh, Calvin. And the papists ignorantly lay hold to this passage. 
and seek to prove from it that vicious, yea, filthy, wicked, and the most abominable lusts are not sins, provided there is no assent. For James does not shew when sin begins to be born, so as to be sin, and so accounted by God, but when it breaks forth, for he proceeds gradually and shews that the consummation of sin is eternal death, and that sin arises from depraved desires, and that these depraved desires or affections have their root in lust. It hence follows that men gather fruit in eternal perdition, and fruit which they have procured for themselves. Um, that's his, his firing back, um, and there's a couple other quotes here from other individuals that really do a good job of, of helping us understand the nature of our desires. Now with that, I want to talk to you about the topic for today. Take out your sheet. Um, and this sheet is about temptation. This is just the next um, area that is, is very practically helpful for us when we think about uh, the temptations you and I, all of us experience. I'll read through it and then we'll, we'll, I'll comment on sections. Um, and I'd rather read through it once, I'll comment on the sections for time's sake. Um, looking at the first couple of sentences with me, it starts by saying, we affirm that the scripture speaks of temptation in different ways. There are some temptations that God gives us in the form of morally neutral trials. In other temptations, God uh, never gives us because they arise from us, from within, us, from within as morally illicit. So there's a couple different kinds of temptations, and they're used sometimes um, that come from trials. The, the, the first one is neutral trials. Um, this is the one where, like in James 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. They're tests a bit for us in our strength and our growth. They're to help us grow. And these are morally neutral. They could be any number of things. Probably one of the most common ones you could think of would be a, a trial of health that you have. Something that comes upon you, age, uh, brings with it weakness and ailment, and so you start to struggle with these things. There could be something happens when you're young, whatever the case, something that's it's morally neutral in the sense that it's by God's providence that it occurs in your life. I know it's part of a fallen humanity, but that's the nature of all these trials that we're talking about, but it's something that happens. Now, how we interact with God when we're under that duress, when we're experiencing that trial, there is, could be a temptation to be mad at God over this, angry with God. Um, and I'm not talking about angry with the effects of sin like the psalmist is. I mean like Cain was angry with God. There's that uh, something God in his providence brings something to pass in it. Um, it's a trial, but it also serves as a temptation perhaps to doubt God, to lash out at God, to not believe in God. Um, so that's, that's one such example of a trial that could be, it's neutral, but yet it's something of a temptation because of who we are, our sinful desires, our desire for self-sustenance um, self, uh, or because we think we know what's best for, in God's will. You cannot stop some of this. this you're a human being. You're a sinful human being, but you're a human being who... who uh, feels discomfort, and so it's going to, this is going to happen in your life. You're going to have these, these feelings of, of doubting. Why is God doing this? Well, and while they may be sinful thoughts, they're not unforgivable sinful thoughts, and you're a child of God. So you can go to God with a certain amount of assurance, despite the fact you'll struggle with those trials at times. We wrestle through. It's not the end of the trial when we have those thoughts. But it's a good descriptor of something that would be neutral um, in how it arises. Like it says, there are some temptations God gives us in the form of morally neutral trials. And other temptations that God never gives us because they arise from within is morally illicit desires. This is more of your outright um, 
something illicit comes before it. It could be sexual, it could be substantive, something, a substance that comes before you to, te- to tempt you into it, to, to partake in the thing that's, more, that's illicit. And look at James, uh, again, through this lens that I just mentioned and read earlier. In James 1, through 13 through 15, or I'll, I'll read it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Now we're talking about, you know, um, something sexually illicit, let's say, or, uh, you know, God's not tempting you to go open up your computer to see porn or look on your phone for porn. That's not, that, that's, that's coming from your desires and there's a sense in which there's accessibility to it, provides a temptation, but recognize that on the human level we're talking, um, that God's not tempting you with this in that respect. It says, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted but with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I, so this, this is, helps us in this area of human sexuality because any of the sensual, uh, anything that's sensual, that we can taste, touch, feel, smell, anything like that, grips us in a different way. It's very powerful because we're made a body-soul nexus. So there's a sense in which the body is a bit of a gatekeeper for the soul. I don't want to give it one primacy over the other because all, for all eternity, we're all going to have bodies and souls. That's the normal existence. But because of that, things that we experience with our bodies, they have impact, they have an impression upon the soul. And that's especially true for sex, any kind of sexual activity because of the way it was designed. But we can think of this way, think of this way for substance as well. Uh, could be... Um, alcohol or drugs, something that makes us feel in a certain way. Um, it says in the Old Testament that, li- that wine lightens the heart, uh, but that's different from being drunk. And um, similarly, food, like it tastes good and it's a great gift from God, but we have to control um, how much of that we have. So there's a temptation with these sensual things to sin with them. And that's just, that's, that's part of, uh, live, that's really one of the most um, glaring ways that we struggle Covetousness could be this way as well. Like, if I could have this car or whatever it may be, let's say a car, um, if I just had this, I would be satisfied. I'd be happy if I had this, some material object. There's nothing wrong with the material object, um, but there's, and there's nothing wrong with the other, those other areas either, necessarily. Um, it's just a matter of how we interact with those and how they become a temptation to sin because of our desires. So we have to recognize the way uh, things are. God's providence in the normal happenings of life could be tempting to us because of our desires to doubt God, be mad at God, or, or maybe do something wrong when we know we should do something right. Um, there are other areas, like you're faced with things all the time that could be temptations for one person and not the other. It's just different. Like when you're preparing your taxes and you're going through with your tax advisor and you know you're supposed to claim this or that and the other, do you just decide you're not going to? There's a temptation there. It's just a, it's kind of a, a, an amoral thing, if you will, uh, and yet, you know, there's opportunity at every step to, to choose to obey God or not obey God. And there could be temptation there based on your particular desires. And everyone has reasons for why their desires are the way they are. They're shaped in certain ways. That's what we've been talking about a little bit here too. Uh, shaping influences in your life. Um, whatever. We call them hereditary sometimes. I don't know if it's, it's a genetic thing. But it's just we watch something. You know, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to say one. I'm never going to count to three like my parents did. And then the first time you catch yourself doing that, before you saw any, read any Ted Tripp books on shepherding children's hearts, you counted to three. I can't believe I'm doing the same thing my parents did, or whatever it may be that you do. So we learn some of the things that are, that are ways we think and, and behave, and, and then they work themselves out. Uh, but temptations um, are, function much like this in, in, in many ways. Let's look at the next phrase that comes next. Okay. When temptations come from without, 
the temptation itself is not sin unless we enter into the temptation. Uh, so it could, it could be something flashed before us. It could be illicit or not. Illicit's more difficult to judge because our minds are so quick at, at capturing that which is illicit. But it could just be something that is tempting us. The temptation itself is not the thing. It, it, that, that could be morally neutral. It's just what we do with it, uh, how we enter into it. We start to entertain it. It's easy as to think in sensual terms because as soon as you start thinking of something, it, it, you're, you're starting down that road that's very challenging to stop yourself from. That's true in the sexual area. It's true in the... I, I can relate with food because that's always been a challenge for me to be self-controlled about food. I'm not... It's a struggle I have because uh, it's more acceptable, especially for pastors. You know, you'll bust me for sexual sin immediately, which you should, but, you know, I could be a glut in a bit and you'll lay low. Or at least you only say it behind my back. So that kind of a thing. Um, but the problem is, is, is I, I know my process when I'm, when I'm self-controlled or in a... I, I look at certain things... And, it, and for me, it's a process that starts in my desires because I'll just start thinking about how, how this thing tastes or whatever. And that on its own doesn't necessarily, isn't wrong on its own. But what am I doing with it? It's, it's, a, it's I can't think in terms of control about it. I start to, it starts to unravel for me. And before I know it, I'm in the pantry. You know, I mean, it doesn't take long at all. Like it's, there's a step from desire to whatever. It's the same with sexual, sexual uh, purity and, and dealing with that in a disciplined fashion. Listen, especially when you're younger and you're single and you're holding yourself out for the, because you know God has told you. And you also know, you also know that it will be better. It will be better if you wait because you want that for that person. You really do want that. And if you've had parents that have done that too, you recognize the value of that. Uh, but you can, you can sense in your sanctified moments, and you have them, that God's way is better than the world's way. And you have friends that are living lives that are awful. Like, it's just not fun for them. They're, they're in all sorts of danger. They're breaking relationships. It's not, you want to have a relationship eventually that's going to have a longevity and a singleness with that person. Uh, so if you give that up now, and it's tough because of everything that's going on, then you won't have that. So you think in those terms. But the more you mull it, the more it comes before you, the more you put yourself in a place to be tempted by it, the, it starts to, your desires um, really can lay hold of you and, and start to weaken you, and eventually you cave to that. And that's, that's the dynamic you see with temptation related to everything we're saying about our desires and such. Uh, I'm talking about temptation now with honesty about what our original corrupted state is in our sin. You don't overestimate your ability to say no. This is why it says in, um, in Scripture, in Timothy, that young men should flee their youthful lusts. It doesn't say argue with it. Flee it. You can't battle those lusts that come, especially in, in youth. You know, it's even more difficult. And older people have their, their set of things that will be difficult as well. Uh, but there's reason why the scripture says it so desperately, flee youthful lust, because um, it's going to come grab you. If you don't run away from it, if you just walk away from it, even you could be in trouble. So it's that serious coming from our passions. The next phrase, the next statement. Nevertheless, there is an important degree of moral difference between temptation to sin and giving into sin, even when the temptation is itself an expression of indwelling sin. I want to be clear. Yes, desire, desires are sinful and individually condemn us before God apart from Christ. But they're not as serious a sin as when we actually live it out. So this is important so that you don't become so steeped in guilt. Over. You could really be struggling with thoughts, and you should be honest about those thoughts before the Lord and rightly humble, but not be down to the point where I cannot get out of my mind any of these, like to the point of Luther where he would self, you know, flat, he'd, he'd beat himself just because he couldn't get his thoughts right. God doesn't have that for us in Christ at all. And further, those thoughts are not as serious as the actual things that come fr from it. Um, being angry with someone, although in the sight of God's holiness, is like murdering, because that's what you're saying. It's not equal to murdering them. 
Uh, we see a continuum in Scripture about that and the way things are dealt with, with people who commit those things. So actual sin, actualized sin that comes from our sinful desires is worse than just thinking about it. I'm not saying just thinking about it doesn't matter, but you, all of us, will never get before glory, get over those thoughts that will, will come to us. Um, we go back to Christ every time because we know that God isn't accepting us on our victory this day or that day. He's accepting us on the finished work of Jesus every day. Um, but we have to recognize there is a continuum here, and this is important for us, as I think this really does a good job of explaining why. Let's continue. While our goal is the weakening and lessening of etern- in internal temptations to sin, that's our long-term goal. We want to see these desires lessen. Christians should feel their greatest responsibility, not for the fact that such temptations occur, but for thoroughly and immediately fleeing and resisting the temptations when they arise, recognizing they are, they are true. Like when you start to have thoughts, this is so personal because this is between you and the Lord. Only you and the Lord know. But when you are about to have a lustful thought, like you do have moments, you, you may have already sinned in the fact that comes from your desire and you entertain that initial thought. But there's this moment of battle that happens at that point where, uh, where we all too often, we, we just, well, no one knows and no one can tell and I keep it to myself and I just do it in my mind. I think it through in my mind. It could be any number of things. We could talk sexually. We could talk uh, covetously. We could talk what we think about someone, our angst towards someone. We see someone across the room. We think, look at that, what that person's wearing. What a loser. I hope, I hope things go bad for them. I'm glad, you know, things that one may say in their sinful hearts, um, there is a battle that it goes on. When you start to find that, what happens then? Is it, Lord, forgive me for this. The reason why we have a, a weekly confession of sin is because you're all guilty of what we're saying. And so am I. And you could pray it again in another hour and you'd have a couple more. Like, we just know corporately it's good to say it together because these are some deep sins that are spoken of and addressed. They're not particulars to, but you can identify. I always say to the elementary kids, we do the same confessions of sin for the kindergarten through fifth grade as we do for you all. Now, I know a lot of the words they don't know. So what we do is when we're teaching during worship, we stop and whoever's leading will take a sentence and explain what some of these words mean. Um, and, and we'll talk it out with the kids. I never, I, I've never ever yet had a young, ch- a young student disagree with me on sin. Uh, did your mom teach you to sin? They never say yes. How'd you learn a sin? Are you a sinner? Yes. When we meet children for a communicant membership, it's not until they get older that they start to debate the extent of their sin. They know it young. They, 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 they know it. And they, oh, to be like a child. And when we're like that, when we understand the sin that we have, um, then we're able to confess our sins and we, we are able to own those sins. And then, of course, we don't stop there. We go to Christ. We go right to Jesus and stand in the throne room of grace because we have the blood of Jesus covering us. That gives us the boldness to tell God we know we're sinners. We know these sins. We know you know these sins. Help us battle these sins. Now, with that exercise... That helps us in the day-to-day struggles to recognize, you know, we need to go before the Lord with these sins. Not because he'll cast us off, but because he's our father and we want to. We're going to. We're going to have to. At that moment, that could help us fight against that sin that might be rising, that temptation that is, is uh, confronting us. Christians should feel their greatest responsibility, not for the fact that such temptations occur, but for thoroughly your responsibility, my responsibility, for thoroughly and immediately fleeing and resisting the temptations when they rise. You're in an argument with your spouse and voices are rising or anger. And now one of you, both, I'm going to win this argument. Fight that temptation. 
This isn't about winning an argument. This is about the peace of our family. No, we have to make right sins against one another. I don't mean ignore those. But, you know, you get into that mode, maybe with your child, where I'm going to win this argument. I'm going to let this teenager beat me out in an argument. Listen to yourself when you start saying, this is about me. This is about my self-glory. This is about my... And so that temptation to put oneself above others is, is where you fight. That's where you... What am I doing? Why do I got to be this? Why am I mad again? Why am I thinking this way? Why am I speaking this way? You engage in a battle in the midst of it. You've had, the temptation is going to happen in many cases. You'll see that diminishes you grow, but there'll be others that will arise. So do we see it when we see it and then battle it? That's the sensitivity the Spirit of God gives you. It's a conscience. It's the Holy Spirit working to convict with your conscience. Uh, and that's a whole other interesting topic on its own. But for now, I think you know what I mean experientially. Now, it continues. We can avoid entering into temptation by refusing to internally ponder and entertain the proposal and desire to actual sin. Um, this is especially true in, in sins of the mind. We're talking about sexual purity. Um, if you take in too much externally, or if you take in anything illicit externally, it's going to cause that to multiply in your mind, in your head, and you're going to have fuel for further sin. And this could be true of the other sensual sins as well, uh, for sure. So what we have to recognize is we'll have less opportunity for temptation with the less exposure we have to those things that fuel the temptations. We can avoid entering into temptation by refusing to internally ponder and entertain the proposal and desire to actual sin. So it's a bit of uh, washing our mind with the water of the word that has to happen. So the more you're, you're, it's not just about putting away these things, it's about filling it with things that are the right ways to think, the right ways to contemplate. It's putting off and putting on, as we talked back in Ephesians. So in all, the old grave clothes and putting on Jesus' resurrection uh, glory. Without some distinction, this is important, this is kind of a final, hopefully encourage, encourages you. Without some distinction between, number one, the illicit temptations that arise in us due to original sin, just the fact that we're always going to have something that burgeons up, uh, between that and the willful giving of over to actual sin, Christians will be too discouraged to make every effort at growth in godliness and will feel like failures in their necessary efforts to be holy as God is holy. Remember, God is pleased with our sincere obedience, even though it may be accompanied with weaknesses and perfection. The battle you're fighting pleases God. Even though you're messing up along the way, it pleases God. It pleases God because you're in Christ. He's not waiting you to, to prove yourself to him. He's not waiting for you to add some merit. All of it's accomplished. It's, it's, it's to the glory of his grace that you, a sinner, could be transformed. And so when you do things like that and show um, a movement towards God, that's to his glorious grace. He's pleased with that. He's pleased with that. And so we can't think too hard. People become paralyzed um, when they think too hard on their sins. And they only dwell there. And they don't recognize there's some aspect of it, brothers and sisters, you will never shake completely. Not, not until glory. I'm not saying just get over that and move on because I know it's more serious than that. But to some degree, you do have to move on. I always think of on to what God's called you to, not to nothing. I always think of Roger Craig back in the 90s. He was a running back for the San Francisco 49ers. He just he had a running style that kind of made me laugh. He would, he would shoot his knees up, almost up to, his, up to here, and he'd plow through crowds that most people couldn't get through. He just kept his legs pumping. Even if you held him stop, he'd keep pumping his legs. Eventually, sometimes he'd break people and get free. I don't see any running backs do it quite like that anymore. That's what you're doing in your Christian life. You're keeping your legs pumping, and sin's going to try to grab you. It's going to try to pull you back, but just keep pumping. And sometimes you're going to get dragged back for a loss, but keep pumping. Get back up and do it the next play. He could, nail, he could tackle for a loss one play, next play, he'd do the same thing he did the play before, pumped his legs, got through and got 10 yards. That's, that's the Christian life. That's the, that's the Christian life. 
Um, so be assured that God's at work in you. In Second Peter 1, verse 5 and 7, for this very reason, make every effort to supplant your faith with virtue, the supplement, not supplant, that'd be terrible. Don't supplant your faith. Supplement your faith with virtue and with virtue, knowledge. And knowledge, self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. That's pumping your legs. Just keep supplementing it. Keep adding to it. You're going to get hit. Knock for loss sometime. Knock down. Your helmet come off. Put it back on. Get up. And we'll help you. We'll help each other. That's what we do. In First Peter 1, Again, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Uh, Last statement, and I'll close. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, uh, section 6. Notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life holy and blamable and, un- and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to consider temptations in light of who we are as sinners, but also in light of who we are as your children through faith in Christ. Pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters today by what they have heard and in all the areas we struggle, O Lord. Give us your aid to, to keep our legs pumping, our knees high. In Jesus' name, amen.